Well, some time ago, I asked you all to feed me sermon topics, and some of you did. So that's what we've been doing for the past few weeks. That's why we called it a series, the series you asked. It just so happened that some of them lined up with Advent themes. Um, so next couple sermons will be on the deity and the humanity of Christ, um, Christmas Eve. No spoilers, Ben's got a special topic for us there, but it was submitted, it was asked. But today, we think about all of those Christmas texts uh, of Jesus' birth, Jesus' birth narratives, and these angels are on the scene, uh, sort of appearing out of nowhere. Then they disappear, these powerful, mysterious beings. Um, you know, do they exist? How should we think about them? How should we think about... Uh, our reality with regard to this invisible scene that's behind the scenes, this invisible realm. Um, According to a CBS News report in 2011, nearly 8 in 10 Americans believe in angels. Um, According to the Bible Society in 2016, a third of all Brits believe in guardian angels, meaning each person gets a specific angel assigned to them, kind of follow them around everywhere and... um, Some people believe that, but it doesn't really matter what polls say. What matters is what Scripture says, and some of us are steeped in an overzealous desire to think of angels and their names and wishing we could see them. Others of us are steeped in a kind of skepticism that, frankly, is unbiblical, that all we see is is flesh and blood in front of us and all the other stuff, you might as well be talking about elves and fairies and weird things like that. Well, the Bible does talk about this realm of angels. Um, I think we get it wrong oftentimes with little chubby babies and diapers that float around on clouds. I mean, I don't... Have you ever wanted to fall dead in front of one of those things? Or have you ever been tempted to worship some, a little toddler Some of you may be, okay, I don't want to go down that path. But these beings that in Scripture are powerful, um, scary even. And I'm talking about good angels. Scary. How how often do angels have to, before they get to their speech, have to say, fear not. To, To powerful figures in the Bible, they're not necessarily cowards. Angels are active, and they're active today. I don't think Scripture teaches one-on-one guardian angels. I don't think Scripture bears that out. There may be enough of them to do that, but I don't think Scripture demands that. One author, uh, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology said he, he believes they at least play a zone defense. Some of y'all don't know basketball. Okay, but that's all right. Um, scripturally speaking, what are their jobs? Okay, what do angels do? All right, angels, their jobs... I'm not going to give you all the scripture passages because I want to move quickly, but their jobs include, they're worshipers for sure. When we sing, we join them in song. Uh, I'm just going to pause there really quickly, but if any of you guys, men, have ever thought, "Eh, singing is kind of, you know, it's for girls. These powerful angelic beings sing. So sing. They are throne guardians. Um... to geek out, and I don't remember their names, but remember Star Wars, the Emperor had special guards clad in like red clothes, they were kind of mysterious, you, n- you never saw them in battle, but they must be amazing, right, because they're, 
the, the throne room has its own set of more powerful beings, and some of God's angels are in that role. Not personal guardians for people, but sort of guarding God's worship scene. Sometimes they're depicted with angels, uh, uh, with wings, but oftentimes angels appear as just regular dudes. Um, and sometimes the biblical character doesn't find out they're an angel till later, till afterwards. I think the wings just communicate that they are beings that sort of move between heaven and earth. And as one author explained, how else would you move between heaven and earth in, ancient, in an ancient view if you didn't have wings? They weren't going to have jetpacks, right? So they, they move and they minister to men, but they belong in the heavenly realm. And so they come in and out of those two spheres or two dimensions, we might call it now. So they are worshipers. They're throne guardians, some of them. They are uh, described as soldiers of God. They are servants of God. They sit in a divine council of God. So imagine a, a huge board meeting. And God is like, all right, what are we going to do this week? What are we going to do this month? Angels are sort of sitting around that table. They're not on par with God. God is boss, right? But, but he draws stuff up on the whiteboard, and they go do, okay? This is described in the Old Testament for sure. Uh, clearly, they're messengers of God. The word angel means messenger. Sometimes the word angel isn't even referred to an angel. Sometimes anyone who's a messenger, a pastor can be a messenger, Okay? Um, but other times it's clearly referring to a, a non-human being. And they're messengers of God. They come, Jesus is born, and they announce, hey, this is what this is about. They're announcing something, okay? Uh, they're attendance to human needs. Uh, what human needs? Any, I guess, any. All of the above, they, they have power to do things, but they're given permission by God to do those things. Now, as we think about that, this Advent, we think about the Christmas texts, the birth narratives of Christ, the carols that we sing, like herald angels sing and things like that, angels in the realms of glory that we're going to sing in a few minutes. They speak of angels uh, just as far as what we know, because we don't know much. We don't know much about angels. I want you to think of it as like everything that you see is on a stage, and then there's this huge curtains, and um, once in a while, the director just pulls the curtain so you can see what's going on back there, and then shuts it. You just see something real quick, and then closes it. It's almost like God doesn't want you back there, okay? He wants you to know this is a production, and then whoosh, he closes it just enough for you to know that's it. Sometimes someone from backstage comes out with a mic and a little clacker thing. I don't know what they have back there. Uh, but they come out and they say something and then they go back in and back to the scene. This is not the main thing for our focus is not what's backstage. The main thing that God wants us to see is what's in the front of the stage. And that's why he's put this curtain there. We cannot, for the most part, most of the time, see angels. Some people claim they have seen an angel, uh, that they have seen angels. We do see throughout scripture uh, that angels are appear and then they disappear. They look like humans. You didn't know it was an angel. Sometimes you very much knew it was an angel. Oftentimes that was through a vision and not a physical uh, pulling of the curtain. But I think we do well to understand that this realm exists. We need to know there's a backstage back there, even if we don't know all the details. Because when we think the things that are happening in front, that's it, that's all that's going on, we miss a lot. And it's actually dangerous to do that. 
Um, I think one of the reasons why it's dangerous is because some of those angels are evil. Some of those angels are fallen angels. Now, scholars debate about when they fell, how they fell, you know, at what point did they do, how, you know, what, what was it that they, can they be redeemed? The Bible doesn't say anything about redeeming angels. In fact, the author of Hebrews argues that we're better than angels, not because we're more powerful, more smart, more wise, but God rolled out a redemption plan and killed his own son, not for angels. I don't think there's a redemption plan for angels. Why? God has no obligation to roll out any redemption plan whatsoever. That's why it's called grace, not that's what I thought. It's thank you, right? So there's no redemption plan for angels. There are evil angels. And uh, I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but I, I think they hate that you get a redemption plan. They hate it. We ignore evil. We ignore that there's an evil realm, that there are spirits. That's to our detriment if we do that. I don't know how many of you know this guy. I hesitate to say his name. I don't really know much about him, but he's in the news a lot. Andrew Tate, he's this online influencer, recently converted to Islam. And one of his reasons for converting to Islam was Christians just are okay with everything. They don't fight. They just cave. Now, is that true of all Christians? No. But can you think of mainline denominations that that's all they do? Yeah. They, they rip out hymns in the hymnal. They, they black out verses in Scripture that are not politically correct. But interestingly, one of his, it wasn't on Twitter, but one of his you know, tweets, one of the things he posted online, he said, this is why I'm a Muslim. Any Christian who believes in good and understands the true battle against evil must convert. In his mind, Christians are so checked out. If you believe there's an actual battle between good and evil, you've got to be Muslim because Christians are useless in terms of battling evil. Now, that's not true, but that's in his mind. And you can see, some of you have seen on this, uh, the Christian scene misrepresentations of what Christianity is. Some of you have been to churches where you walk in and all it is is a big concert, rah-rah, to try to get you back to give them money. It's not about evil. Somebody asked him in an interview, How did, why, why Islam? He said, well, there's so much evil in the world, I figure there has to be someone behind it. But if there's someone behind the evil, then there has to be a God. Therefore, I wasn't an atheist anymore. I've not really heard of that before. You know, I hope God just keeps moving them, like moving them in the right direction. But I think we need to listen when people's impression of Christianity is we just, we don't have any understanding of the fact that we're like in this matrix. And everything we see, everything we can touch, that's the only thing that's real because it's not true. Now, we don't want to be over-fixated on it, and I'll get to that in a minute, but we need, we need to understand it when Scripture gives it to us. And to do that, I want to take you to Ephesians 6. I didn't want to do Ephesians 6 because it's so common. Our brother Aaron did Ephesians 6, this passage for us. I don't remember that one that was, brother. It wasn't that long ago, and he did a fine job. But I hope you'll see with me that there's more uh, to see here, and um, there'll, there'll be some overlap with that sermon, of course. But Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll just be in 10 through 20. So we're not going to bounce around a, a bunch of different passages today, no, nothing up on the slides or the screen, just I want, 
I want you to be in the text, Ephesians uh, chapter 6, uh, 10 through 20. And let's just take it you know, one piece at a time. The first thing we're going to see is that our strength against these real powerful evil spirits is in Christ. Check out how he starts. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Let's pause there because it's a lot. But this is the jolting reality. Now, none of this is really come out in detail all through Ephesians. He's laying out down a bunch of doctrinal stuff. Understand the gospel. Understand the gospel. Apply the gospel. Here's how you apply the gospel between children and parents. Here's how you apply the gospel between slaves and masters. Here's how you apply the gospel here and there. And then suddenly he pulls the curtain back, right? Not, not in full detail, but in enough detail to go, just remember there's a backstage back there. When you're living stuff out here, Remember, there's a, there's a director, there's, a, there's cameramen, there's a whole crew, and actually they're, they're battling for what happens out here. Just remember that's there. And so when he tells us to do that, the first thing he says is to tell us where we get our strength from. To tell you where you get your strength from. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might. I don't have strength to battle demons, but it's in the strength that I have in Christ. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. It's God's armor. We, we mess this up. When we start going down the thing, it's like, I need to put on my righteousness. I need to put on my salvation. No, no. His righteousness, his salvation, his peace, Right? It's God's armor that he puts on you. And so we need to make sure that our focus isn't demons, but that our focus is God. That our focus is God. Our focus shouldn't even be angels. The good angels don't even show up in this passage. Don't worry about it. He's got your back. He's got angels everywhere. I mean, that's true. But he wants you, me, to stand in this fight and to recognize that our strength is in God and in the armor that he clads us with. Whole armor of God means that your position is in Christ. He says whole armor of God twice. He says it again in verse 13. And this whole letter has been grounding everything in Christ up to this point. Take your time, go back, read all of Ephesians leading up to this passage. Everything, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ. That's why you should live like A, B, and C. You're in Christ so whole armor of God means you're, you're in Christ. In Romans 13, Paul calls it the armor of light. And in that passage, he clearly equates that with putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that when we were in Romans 13. Put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on his righteousness. It's all the same thing. So outside of Christ, you have no armor. Imagine being thrown out in battle. You've got nothing. There's no weapons. You've got no armor. You just have a burlap with a rope. And you're just out there, and there's arrows and stuff flying everywhere. you got nothing. You're dead. But he's saying, no, you, you can stand in this fight because 
you're in Christ, okay? And we need to make that clear. Um, outside of Christ, you cannot stand. But in Christ, yes. In Christ, yes. And your source of strength is God himself, not human ability. He says in verse 10, when you put on the whole armor of God, recognizing that your strength for the fight is in him, then you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Our fight is against actual powerful persons, okay? Now, some people think, well, there's forces that are general, I don't know, it's like a negative chi or something that just kind of floats out there uh, that, that is sort of the negative karma of the world. I don't know. I'm using terms I don't even really know. Just, just an impersonal negative force out there. But do impersonal negative forces scheme? Think about it. The schemes of the devil. He, he plans. He's a sentient being. And just like he planned to trip up Adam and Eve in the garden, he plans now. He has schemes. And in fact, that Paul doesn't tell us to stand against the devil, to stand against his schemes. You and I have no position to take out the devil, kill the devil, trap the devil, right? You're not even, he's not even asking you to stand against the devil directly, although uh, Peter, of course, tells us resist the devil. But it's his schemes, it's his plots, it's his planning. It's, it's the, the ways in which he's drawing out in his council, in his boardroom, He's throwing you up on a whiteboard. How do we get this guy? Schemes. And our fight is against actual scheming, sentient beings. The devil is clearly a person throughout Scripture. He's not omni-anything. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's probably really, really smart. He roams the earth. He looks for whom he might devour. He tempted Jesus by offering his kingdom in this world, etc. So he's a person. He interacts. He speaks. He talks. You, you can con- Jesus conversed with him. And he and the other evil spirits, they're powerful. Without God in Christ, we would not be able to stand, as it tells us to do in verse 11. They are, according to Paul, they are rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, Spiritual forces, you see all those roles there? Not roles, but sort of ways in which he's describing demons. They are, they are not little impish elves with fangs that kind of want to steal your breath at night or something. They're, they're not. They're, they are authorities that some, some theologians believe that they're in charge of regions, areas, maybe peoples. They have rank. They're organized. They are authorities. They are cosmic powers. They were, they're spiritual forces. They're rulers. They are demonic, I don't know, princes, captains, sergeants. They, they, they're organized in this scheme so that when they're done drawing you out on the whiteboard, they go, let's, let's go. Or maybe not an individual, but maybe a church. How do we take out CFC? And so the sergeants and the captains get to work. They have lieutenants. I don't, I mean, maybe not those words, but they're organized because that's how rulers and authorities work. It's fuzzy in Scripture, but it seems like even the good angels, they vary in rank. Michael is called an archangel, and they probably have oversight over particular things, like maybe areas, different assignments. 
but they're not visible. That doesn't make them not real, but they're not readily visible to us. They do this stuff behind the scenes. That's why Paul says we wrestle not, in verse 12, not against flesh and blood, but then he gives us all these sort of invisible realities that are still realities, even though it's not flesh and blood, see? They're not visible, but they're still at work. And they're scary, and they're powerful, and they are organized, and they carry out the devil's schemes. Make no mistake, they're evil. Schemes to do what? To make you not stand. That's why you're supposed to stand against them, because their goal is to make you fall. They're in charge of this present darkness. They are forces of evil, it says. And we're supposed to stand, look at verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, earlier in Ephesians, he said all the days in which we live are evil. That's probably not a surprise to most of you. You know, all the days in which we live, there's, there's evil lurking. You just open up the news and see. But possibly Paul is talking about the especially evil day in the climax before the end of all things, that, that there's going to be a, a greater amount of pressure and opposition to the church. Or he might mean certain days within all those evil days are going to be real evil for you. Are you hearing me? It might be Friday. I want you to notice this passage assumes that you're getting ready before something hits. Do you see that there? So that you stand in the evil day that's coming. If that's the end times evil day or an evil day that's coming of your life, I think both are true. You're going to be hit with something. That something isn't the scheme, but the devil can use that something to cause you to doubt. You'll follow God as long as your spouse remains alive. Do you think the devil knows that? You're good with God as long as you get to keep all your children. Evil will cause you to doubt God's goodness. They are evil and they are powerful. What are they capable of? Well, they are on God's leash. But sometimes God gives slack to that leash. You remember in the book of Job, Satan is unable to touch Job's whole family unless God is like, all right, you can go this far, but not that far. God opens the leash and then holds it. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul is struggling with this pain. We don't know exactly what that pain is. It's a thorn in his flesh, he calls it. He's so desperate. Now this brother, do you remember reading through 2 Corinthians? He already reminded that church that he's more spiritual than all the other preachers that they like to. And he, the reason why he brags is like I'm bragging like a crazy person, but I have to tell you because you think I'm nothing. And when I come to you, I'm going to have to rebuke you. I want you to know that I'm not nothing. And one of the ways he beefs up his resume is how many times he got beat up. Do you remember that? He's like, I've been stoned. I've been flogged numerous times. I've been shipwrecked. I was just trying to physically imagine Paul some of us worked out too hard on Saturday and we're like, eh, eh. Whipped, like the flesh coming off your back numerous times. Stones, that's supposed to be you die. They didn't kill him. By God's grace, he survives all these executions or tortures. And he's like, I endured all of that. Shipwrecked, he's floating on a piece of wood, you know. 
And then in chapter 12, he says, there's this one pain that I just can't take. And I've taken it to the Lord three times. And somewhere in there, God revealed to him that that was a demonic uh, pain. It was a messenger of Satan. What's messenger mean? Angel. The word is angel. An angel of Satan was sent to torment me. And he asked Jesus to remove it. And Jesus says, no, I need that there. Because then you'd be conceited, Paul. That's going to keep you humble and working as a worthy servant in my life. Now, I can preach that whole thing, but the point I'm trying to score with you is that demon was only able to terrorize Paul insofar as Jesus let the demon terrorize Paul. And if Jesus wanted it to stop, he'd tell it to stop, and he only did it to serve Jesus' purposes. This is the backwardsness of God's enemy. That the more it tries to stamp out the church, the more the church grows. And the more it tries to snuff out faith in your life, the more it makes your faith grow. Some people fall away because they really didn't have true faith, but others of us, we lose loved ones and we have great pain in our lives, and it makes us cling to God even more because God uses it to reverse uh, the devil's plan on himself. The devil thought he won in the garden. He just started the greatest story the universe ever told. The gospel was prompted by it. So they are powerful insofar as what God allows them to do, but as you read through Scripture... They can wreak damage. Scripturally speaking, I'm not going to give you the verses, but if you want to ask me afterwards, they can cause disease. They can prompt war. They can prompt attacks, uh, like terrorism, let's say. They can start fires. They can start storms, possibly. Uh, They can cause death. Uh, They can cause so-called possession. I'm not sure if that's the greatest word, but when someone is, quote-unquote, demonized, that's them. Of course, temptation. They can incite someone to sin. We see that in Scripture. Uh, They can snatch up the word. You gave somebody the word, but demonically it's taken away so they don't hear it. That's the parable of the sower. Jesus taught us that one. So they are at work. They are active. They are powerful. They can do powerful things, but only insofar as what God allows. They can even stop a missionary from getting somewhere. That's in 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul's like, I tried to go there, but (laughs) demonic opposition. So, we face real, powerful, evil spirits. They're against God and his own. But for all their power, their primary threat are the schemes. They're smart. They're organized. You remember in Matthew chapter 12, they accused Jesus of being demonic. That's how he cast demons out. He has a demon too. And God is like, what kind of army would we be up against if they killed each other? If they shot themselves, what kind, of, what kind of infantry would that be? You remember that? He said, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? What is Jesus teaching there? He's not divided amongst himself. He's organized. And he knows what he's doing. He says it again in Mark 3. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. He doesn't go, <laughs> you're so dumb. They don't have a kingdom. They do have a kingdom. And when Satan offered it to Jesus, Jesus' response wasn't, you don't have a kingdom to give me. Rulers, powers, forces, they do have authority because God's kingdom hasn't been fully rolled out. That's what we're waiting for in the end of time. So, Our primary concern in this fight 
is seeing through those schemes. Look at 11 through 17 as to how we can do that. How do we see through those schemes? Well, he tells us to put on the armor in verse 11. Make sure we understand who we're against in verse 12. And then back to the armor in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. We'll get into that in a minute. But there's sort of a quick rundown of this armor, and he's describing it for us in greater detail than we get in Romans 13. And he's sort of using a piece of armor to explain this reality that we use as a weapon or for protection. If the schemes are to knock you down, your goal is to remain standing, verse 11 and verse 13. Uh, You're not waiting for evil to hit, to start investigating the armor, you're, you're investing yourself in the armor now, so when the evil day hits, you're already ready. You don't start getting dressed in the field of battle. You're already ready before the battle hits. You're preparing now for later, and some of you are maybe in the thick of something difficult right now. You can see their strategies in the weaponry that we have here. Okay? If, if, if a dad calls his son over, hey, I want you to come help me in the garage, grab that hammer real quick. You're probably not working on the car. Well, I guess you could use a hammer for some things working on a car, but you're like, I'm probably going to be hammering a nail. We're probably doing something carpentry related, right? If your dad is like, come with me to the garage, you're going to help me grab that wrench. Okay, there's nuts, there's bolts, there's something. You get an idea of what you're going to do based on the thing that's been giving you in your hand, right? So when we look at the armor... We can see what the schemes are based on what the solution is. We can understand what the poison is when we understand the antidotes that have been given us, uh, that we've been equipped with. And as we go through, we can do it pretty quickly. But uh, he tells us to put on the belt of truth. Why? Because we're up against the devil who's the father of what? Lies. Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 8. He is the devil. He is a liar and the father of lies. He's constantly going to come at you with, did God really say? His strategies don't really change. The same strategy he used on Eve, he uses on Did God say that? Yeah, it's actually this. Why righteousness? Why a breastplate of righteousness? Because he's luring you to do unrighteous things. Even more so, I think he's confusing you on what righteousness is. You're still trying to gain your righteousness? That's a nice trick of the devil. You need to put on Christ's righteousness because of my own. I don't have righteousness to bring to this fight. But Christ's righteousness, that blocks every accusation. Why peace? Well, because he stirs up dissension in verse 15. This is why peace is the antidote to what the schemes are of the devil. Why faith? Because his flaming darts are prompting you to doubt. Those flaming darts are asking you to question what God really says. Why salvation in verse 17? Because he's an accuser and wants you to think you're still condemned and not saved. Why the sword of the Spirit? Why is our sword... Notice everything is really protective and one thing is sort of the the weapon of offense that you can use 
and it's the word of God. Well, that's what Jesus did in the temptation when he was tempted. Jesus, uh, the devil tried to convince him to get off track, right? And Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy. Because, and, and sometimes we say, well, when you feel like the devil's tempting, you start quoting scripture. That's not the point of that. The point of that is uh, the devil was setting Jesus up based on a half-truth or a lie, and Jesus went to Scripture to go, oh, no, actually, this is what's true. And that's what we're supposed to do. It's not just randomly quoting Scripture, like, oh, I feel scared right now. Let me pull out a verse, read it out loud, and hopefully the devil goes away. Like, Scripture is just a magic wand. It's understanding what Scripture says. That's when you wield the sword. Not just quoting it and reading it out loud. You can just... Have Alexa play scripture out loud in your living room all day and the demons stay away. If you don't understand what it's reading, you're in no better position than the atheist who likes to read scripture because it's ancient literature, right? It's understanding what God really did say. So when Satan comes and says, did God really say? No, I'll tell you what God says. Then quote scripture in context, understanding what it means and clinging to that by faith. That's what the armor is after. It's donning what God has given us so that we can stand in this fight and understand that those schemes are to cause us to doubt these things that the Lord has given us, peace and righteousness and salvation and faith and the word of God to deepen our understanding of all of those things. We see through the devil's schemes by knowing the truth, knowing what is righteous, having the very righteousness of Christ covering us. That is salvation, knowing that 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 salvation is real peace. And that peace is what readies us for battle. So it's not a flimsy faith. It's based on truth in God's word. Knowing what he says, and not just knowing what he says academically, but knowing what he says and trusting him for it. Trusting God for it. So how do we do that going forward? Should we bind demons? Should we be walking around rebuking them? Should we be seeing them in every shadow, every corner, and all that kind of stuff? Well, we'll get into that. I think our, your primary focus needs to be the Word of God and prayer. Why? That's what Paul said. Paul doesn't have anything here about incantations or speaking Latin, bring your holy water. There, there's nothing. That's, that's Hollywood. Know your Word and pray. How simple is that? How simple is that? Do you have to call the most well-known pastor in the region to come battle this demon? Why don't you read the word and pray like Paul said to do? Why? Because your pastor is not any more powerful than you are. The power is not in ourselves, but it's in the, this word of God that we wield. That doesn't mean we shouldn't lean on pastors, elders, other people to help in, in situations. My point is, um, the word of God itself, the truth of God's word and trusting in it, coupled with prayer. I love how Paul doesn't even say, and the spear of prayer. He's just like, look, just pray. Like he's done with the analogy. Will you just pray? Okay. He says uh, in verse uh, 17, let's, uh, leading into 18, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints 
and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So pray. Pray at all times. Pray with all prayer. Pray with all supplication. Another way to say prayer. And then he says it again, making supplication for all the saints and for me. So pray. Pray a lot. Pray earnestly. Pray vigorously. Pray not just for yourself, but pray for other people too. That coupled with the word of God, so we know what to pray, is how we stand against the devil and his schemes. Jesus gave his disciples authority over demons. He gave his, and I think we still carry that authority. I don't think that was strictly just apostles in the first generation. I think Christians have this authority. Why? Because Christ has been given authority. Jesus has authority. And notice, Jesus didn't give the disciples a formula. What you need to do is tie them up with rope that's never been broken. But, you know, some magical Harry Potter sounding thing. He's like, you have authority. What do we do? He didn't even tell them. Do you realize that? He's just like, you have authority. Go get it. All they have is kind of how Jesus did it, right? When Jesus told demons to get out or that kind of thing. But he gave that authority to his disciples. And he's like, go ahead, go and figure it out. He didn't give them magical incantations or anything that Hollywood would tell you. You got to call the guy with the briefcase and, you know, you don't have to know the demon's name. This is not, this is all Hollywood. You need to know Christ. You need to know the rank of the demon, the name of the demon, how many demons. You don't need to know any of that. Do you know Christ? Any number, any legion cannot hang with Christ. Do you know Christ? That's the answer. And do you know what Christ has said in his word? And do you cling to that? And do you trust that? That is your source of strength, not knowing uh, any details about anything beyond that or what's behind the scenes. How do you discern if an evil spirit is at work. Does that bother anybody? I don't know. Uh, Some of us might think, I don't know if this person has a spirit. They might, but I don't know if we have to know. Do we have to know? I think in most cases, we probably don't know if there's specifically a demon causing that pain, causing that sickness, causing that depression, causing that particular point of doubt in your life. Is there a particular demon back there? Now, here's why I don't think it makes a big deal. It's not a big deal. Why? Because if there is a specific demon doing something specific in someone's life and you do somehow discern that, now what's your strategy? Any different than what you would do if, it, if you didn't discern that? Word of God and prayer. Right? Now there's nothing in Scripture about binding demons. Go bind them, go tie them. None. Zero. S- Jesus comes and binds Satan. And Jesus says, now that I've bound Satan, we can loot his house. Go get him. It's like God, Jesus is slowly taking over this house. And he's sending Christians throughout all the floors with flashlights. And we're just kicking demons out. That's, that's the advance of the church through the gospel. As people are converted and being brought out of darkness and into light. That's how we do it. How do you do that? The word of God in prayer. How do you stop sin in your life? The word of God in prayer. The things that you're supposed to be doing that are good, that please God, but you're just not feeling the energy to do them, don't waste three seconds on thinking whether a demon is behind that. The only way you'll do those good things is word of God and prayer. So I don't think it's necessary 
to know whether there's a specific demon at work. Maybe in some cases you, you know somehow. But I believe that what we know in Scripture is what we need to know. That's what we use, the sword of the Spirit and consistent prayer. And let me just drive this home with you quickly. I, I don't, do we need to know a specific demon is behind the evil in our day? Okay. Let, let me just give you an example, all right, just to just put the lump in your throat. This morning, I just Googled, I put two words in the Google search field, redefining pedophilia. I'm just going to read you the top four hits. I'm not going to read the article. I'm just going to read the top four hits. I put in redefining pedophilia. First hit, New York Post. Professor's redefinition of pedophilia could help offenders demand rights. Second post, Eternity News, never heard of them. Progressivism, redefining pedophilia and the ABC. Third hit from a website called Blessing Orphan. The push to redefine pedophilia. Fourth hit, Salon.com, redefining pedophilia with pedophiles' help. Now, everybody, I'm talking about not just Christians, non-Christians already saw this coming when we started redefining gender. Well, what you, now you're going to, we're just going to open the floodgate. Oh, no, we won't. It's always no, we won't. And yes, it will. Because they get you here, and once you get there, then they get you there. You don't know what marriage is anymore. You don't know what sexuality is anymore. Now we don't know what gender is anymore. And now you could do anything with a child? Do I have to know, oh, that's the, that's the third-ranking captain of the demonic force of this particular realm? Who cares? It's all demonic. Of course that's a demonic scheme. And we see it daily. After our kids, after our families, just like in the garden, breaking up the family was the first move. Go after the wife, husband's too weak to lead, break it up. Then the first murder is between two brothers. It's just easy to see once you just know, oh, yeah, there is stuff happening behind that curtain. The things that are happening out here are, are directed somehow by things happening behind the scenes. We don't need to know everything that's behind the scenes, but we need to recognize that's what's going on. And we need to recognize that we don't have to just sit and watch things transpire and get worse, but that we are soldiers, and we don't just go, Lord Jesus, would you just come back and in the meantime, I'll just hide and pretend like I don't live in this, this evil matrix. But you actually get to go out there and combat the invisible forces that are, that are back there, right? You, you actually can stand against it. With what? The word of God and prayer. We do that not because we're exorcists, we do that because we're Christians. We carry his authority, and we've been given authority. And whether it's, I think if, if we don't have somebody convulsing and foaming at the mouth in a chair, aside from that, nothing's demonic. I think it's, there's demonic schemes happening all the time. And so Paul wants them to grasp this reality, convince them to be serious about prayer. He asks them for prayer for boldness. Think about Paul that gets beat up. How does he do all that? Is he ever tempted to just give it all up? Yeah, that's why he asked them, pray for my boldness. That's interesting. If anybody didn't need boldness, I think it's Paul, and Paul's telling you the secret to his boldness. 
is that he's fortified as the saints pray for him to believe in this armor, to cling to it, and go out there and wield that sword for the benefit of others as well. Here's a quick application before we wrap up. Our application is simple. Steep yourself in God's word. Like, but in a serious way. Try to understand what it's saying. Try to understand what is God promising you there in in Scripture. What lie is that Scripture undoing so that you can cling to that truth and go, that's what's true, actually. Pray often. Pray seriously. Pray with a focus for other people, not just yourself. Pray especially for evangelization. Don't give up on the people in your life that, ah, I've prayed that for that person for 10 years. Pray in 11th year. Make all supplication. That person's so far gone, that person must have a demonic stronghold in their life. So? Your prayers will kick the door in on that stronghold. Not a Latin incantation. Understand? Not some secret orb, an emerald that you got from a holy place. We don't need relics. Pray. And then finally, stay folded and into the covering of a true local church. Oh boy, here we go again, Pastor Lucas, the importance of church, church membership. Yes, let me prove it to you really quickly. In Matthew 16, when Jesus gives that promise that the gates of hell won't be able to withstand the onslaught of a Christian, no, the church, the church. When people are detached from the church, uh, minimally attending, minimally involved, don't go to prayer meetings, Look, this isn't my pitch to go like, I need you at a prayer meeting. I I get it. Some people don't go to prayer. Every church in the world probably has a smaller prayer meeting than a Sunday morning service. That's just how it is. But if you've ever watched those documentaries where the lion is pouncing on a gazelle and the one that they chose was the straggling gazelle in the back of the pack while the rest of them run and survive, that's what happens. The devil is a roaring lion looking to, who can I devour? Anybody? No, not anybody. The one straggling in the back that aren't really attached to the fold, they're not really underneath the covering of the church. Let me prove it to you further. Not just that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, let alone the fact that everything Paul is giving us here is plural. You all, you all, you all put on the armor, not individually in the privacy of your own home. That's true too. But he's addressing them as the Ephesians and the church, and they do it together. Not only that, Christ makes it really clear that outside of being in Christ, in his body, your father is the devil. When he said that the devil is the father of lies in John 8, he also made it clear that the people he was talking to, your father's the devil, not Abraham. Your father's either the devil or God the Father through Jesus Christ. You see that in 1 John 3, you see that in Matthew 13. It's over and over. There's an in, there's an out. Out, your father's the devil. You don't have to have one Ouija board in your house. You can hate Halloween. You know what I mean? Everything in your house is just pictures of angels on clouds. You've got scripture passages embroidered on your pillows. But you're not, you're not really in the church, or you kind of sit in the back, but you're not, really, you're not really in. You're a church attender, you know what I mean? But what church membership does is go, I know you say you're a Christian, but we affirm you're a Christian, brother or sister. That means something. You're at this table. You're part of this group, and your father's not the devil. You have a new father. You've been adopted into a new family. That's the only way you can stand. Now, check this out. This is crazy. 
it shouldn't be that crazy to us, but that, that we don't visit it very often. Paul makes this very clear. When there's a church discipline matter, somebody's rebelling, there's some point of sin, and the church calls it out, hey, this needs to stop, and that person's like, nah, I'm not going to stop. They're like, you can't be in fellowship with us anymore. And that person is excommunicated. Communion, outside of communion, right? We fence the table. If you're, if you're in, come and approach the table. If you're out, you're not approaching the table. There's an in, there's an out. Excommunication is excommunion. You're not in communion and fellowship with God. And at least twice when Paul describes that, what does he say? Hand them over to Satan. What? I want you to think about that. This person is deemed to be a member of the church, an involved person of the church. But because of unrepentant sin in their life, they just don't want to be led. You're giving them the sword of the Spirit. They don't want to wield it. You're praying for them. They don't want to receive it. And the church eventually says, well, we can't keep calling you brother. Because in your steep rebellion, you're proving you're not a brother. And if we keep allowing you to come and hang out with us and be with us and all of us pretend that you are and you aren't, we're just going along with the devil's lies in your life. (laughs) Rather than communicating to you, you're out there, actually. Now, Paul makes it clear, hand them over to Satan so that they go, whoa, they wake up and they come back and get saved for real this time. The goal is salvation. But I want you to understand that church discipline act of being outside of the church is being handed back over to the father of lies. So that's why I add a third application. Because you can be steeped in the word of God on your own, private. You can be steeped in prayer on your own, private. But disconnected from the body of the church that is supposed to be like, this person is in communion with us. Not excommunicated. This person is communicated. And you don't get that by just racking up a certain number of Sundays in attendance at a church. How do you get that? Well, each church does it differently. Here we call it membership. It's not a high bar. (laughs) We just want to know that you're a Christian. And that you're not living in steep rebellion, duped by a scheme of the devil. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Timothy 1. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Timothy 1. You can look that up on your own time. Of what it means to be handed over to Satan. We face real evil spiritual opponents, but our strength is in Christ. And that door is always open for you to come in, to be a part of this family. We can say, army, right, to armor up with what Christ offers us on the cross. Let's pray. Fathers, we close in the song. We want to join the angels in their singing as they proclaim the beauty, not just of creation, but of uh, the story of recreation, that all of us who were at once lost, all of us who are at once under a curse, all of us who are at once completely captive by uh, the evil one. You've made a way of rescue. You've made a way of refuge so that we escape condemnation. No accusation can stick because of Christ's accomplishment on the cross and in his resurrection and ascension to glory. We pray that as we sing, our hearts would resonate with that truth, that there is no stopping us in terms of uh, pleasing you, living for you, and stamping out little by little the darkness that we see around us in this world. Help us to not be afraid of it. Help us to not run from it, 
but to face it, the word of God, prayer together as a church, as your people, as the body of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?